0: Good news here.
1: Bon Appetit.
0: We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpoxid two years after the flood and shem lived after he fathered arpaxad 500 years and had other sons and daughters when Arpoxid had lived 35 years he fathered Sheila and arpaxad lived after he fathered shela 403 years and had other sons and daughters when Sheila had lived 30 years he fathered eber and Shelah lived after he fathered eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters when eber had lived 34 years he fathered peleg and eber lived after he fathered peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters when Pelag had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. And Pelag lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he followed, fathered Surug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, And Nahor lived, after he fathered Terah, 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, and Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The days of terror were two hundred and five years, and Tara died in Haran. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would by your grace give us your Holy Spirit now to illumine this, the very word of God, as we seek to understand what you have revealed for all time and what you have for us here this morning. You are a gracious God. Thank you that no matter how we've come here this morning or are worshiping online, you are pleased to meet us with grace through the Son given for us and for the world. Father, press us into your story in these moments for your glory and for our good. We pray, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. Like I mentioned just a couple moments ago, this is the end for now of the sermon series from the book of Genesis. It's taken us Through most of the months of this entire school year, you can say that you were there. You'll be able to tell your grandchildren, you might not believe this, but I was actually worshiping throughout that year and or at that last Sunday when that Genesis sermon series concluded at Liberty Collingswood. And so what we're going to be doing here this morning is as we do every Sunday, hopefully, I'll treat the text that I read, this part of the scriptures here. But then also because this is an end of a series, we'll be doing some wrap-up and reflection in some broader ways too. But come on in. The water is going to be just fine. This sermon series set a number of records for us this year. Here are a few of them. Longest sermon series in the centuries-long history of Liberty Church Collingswood. And that's the number of Sundays that we've done this sermon series, also the total number of verses. We've set some other records as well. The most genealogies in a sermon series here at Liberty Collingswood in this series from Genesis. And if you were here worshiping online last Sunday, a first, super exciting, it was powerful and beautiful, our first ever multilingual scripture reading that we had here on a Sunday morning as well. And the whole point idea of this sermon series throughout the year was we wanted to pick a book of the Bible and go through, Sunday by Sunday, passage by passage, what God has revealed to us in that particular part of the Scriptures. God, would you speak to us? And I think he has. And I hope it's not too indulgent for me to tell you as well. This is probably this Genesis sermon series, Probably the most challenging and difficult sermon series that I've ever preached, for a couple of different reasons. One of them, pandemic and polarization. Those are kind of things, and I mentioned earlier too that effectively for this past year we have been relaunching Liberty Church, Collingswood, post-pandemic. There has just been a lot of lot of stressors, a lot of factors in both the pandemic and now post-pandemic reality as we continue to feel those effects in multiple ways. And our culture is getting more hot-takey and more hot-takey and more hot-takey, more polarized across the board. That's just the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. And then also, by intention, this past year we tackled a lot of difficult contemporary issues for this cultural moment, too. And so we just sort of ran the table with a lot of different things. So this year, we've talked through and weighed from the scriptures things like human sexuality and transgender identification. We've talked about Christianity and science, faith and science, Christianity and environmentalism. Talked through the secular slogan, science is real. What does that mean? We've also talked through things like anti-racism and abortion and the authority and inspiration of the scriptures plus its contemporary detractors to such things. We've covered a lot. And these things were not natural for me to cover. I grew up sort of in the preaching school, where the whole idea was when you preach sermons, you focus on the main thing. Focus on Jesus crucified and resurrected. It's the best news in the entire world. That's what people need to hear. And don't get caught up or tangled down in, quote-unquote, secondary or tertiary issues that may be culture wars-esque. Don't get caught in those weeds. Stay on the main thing. And I certainly believe that staying on the main thing is the main thing. That as our world becomes more polarized and people continue to be revved up by different things, the script is flipped in the sense that over my years of ministry, what used to be, for people and culturally considered within this taxonomy, secondary and tertiary issues, they're now the primary issues. And the idea is, hey, we're, we're not going to think about the gospel or Jesus before we hash out some of these other topics first. And so I thought to myself, if that's the lay of the land, then we need to do our best to go there. And some of the best sermon feedback I've heard over this past year have been from some of you, or the sermon feedback that I've most appreciated saying, hey, I'm I'm not sure I'm there. When you're preaching on topic X, I'm I'm still in my own process with these things, but yet at the same time, I appreciate that we're a church that doesn't duck or avoid difficult subjects, but instead we try to lead into them and talk about them in ways that are not hot-takey and angsty, but biblically serious and respectful as we just try to do our best to interpret the scriptures. I've really appreciated feedback like that. But be that as it may, this sermon series has produced for me the most sleepless nights, the most last-minute rewrites, the most take-backs where I'm sitting there on a Sunday afternoon trying just to be absorbed by my angst about Philadelphia sports, but brought back to the sermon on Sunday morning saying, man, I wish I had said that differently, or I said a little too much there, or I didn't say enough there. So it's been challenging. And yet, this has probably been the most satisfying sermon series, to me, that I've ever preached as well. Just in the sense that I feel like God has met me, and through this process of preaching all of these sermons, I feel like God has shown up in our midst, and I exit this year of sermons trusting more in the scriptures themselves, Hey, we can stand on this foundation, more convinced and convicted, That, yes, we really do need to live, speak, and serve as Jesus' very presence here at this time, in these moments, and in this place. And I'm so grateful for Jesus for doing that. Do I need to improve as a preacher? Of course. And I tell myself, if I never stop trying to improve my craft as a preacher, that's when I hang up the preaching shoes. All of them. And say, hey, like I need to always press ahead but I feel like God has met us here in these sermons, on these Sundays, in the discussions, in the home meetings. And as national headlines and statistics across the board in our country, as the church has contracted membership-wise nationally over pandemic, a lot of my headspace has been going back to one of the Gospels, the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, John chapter 6, where Jesus preaches to the crowds A lot of them leave, and then Jesus turns to his disciples and said, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, speaking for all of the disciples, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so Jesus does. And so this gospel, this good news that is the most important news in the world, is hope for us all. So let's talk about that story here again from Genesis chapter 11, and then also a little more broadly, three parts from here. I want to talk about how all of this is one story, also a broad story, and a hopeful story. One story, broad story, hopeful story. Here we go. It's one story. Hello, genealogy, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Here we go. This is a genealogy from the book of Genesis, one of the many that we've looked at in this sermon series. And just in terms of situation in a more micro-location, Genesis 10 to 11 to here has been already a genealogy a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 10, then beginning of Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Now another genealogy here. And like I've told you, when we unpack these genealogies, what do we do? We look for the seams. We look for what stands out. We look for what differentiates this genealogy even within itself or with other genealogies and stuff from each other to see what we can glean by way of difference from this specific one. And I understand that for modern readers, reading genealogies, they all sound kind of the same. But there are differences. So the genealogy right before this in the chapter before, Genesis chapter 10, that was right after the flood, and that genealogy was the story of all of these people groups, all of these nations filling the earth. It was expansive, centrifugal, expanding out, filling all things. But you know what? This genealogy here in the latter part of Genesis chapter 11, in that regard, is exactly the opposite. If that genealogy was expanding out, filling lots of different places, this one does the opposite. It narrows. It telescopes down. It drills down. And we're talking here not about all of the peoples on the earth, but specifically about one part of the line of Shem. Genesis 10 before that, the sons of Noah filling the earth, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. This is just Shem here. And the formula of this genealogy, maybe you heard as I was reading through, there's a repetition to it. Most genealogies have those formulas, those repetitions. This formula, this repetition is actually shorter than the genealogies that we've seen so far. It's streamlined as if it's trying to go fast to get to a certain point. Or even better, it's going fast to get to a certain person, namely Abram who becomes Abraham later in Genesis. The whole point of this genealogy is to get us all the way to Abram. You even hear within this genealogy itself, the formula breaks. The standard formula, verse 24 and 25, when Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. That was the repeat, the repeat, the repeat, right? But next verse, 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Nothing about that other sons and daughters here. And now, these are the generations, that's marking a major segment once again, verse 27 in Genesis, of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and so on. Thus begins the story of Abram. As if to say this, all according to the plan and promises of God, through the book of Genesis so far, We're going from all creation to all humanity to one man, one person. All creation, Genesis and human beings, our first parents, Adam and Eve, all created good in Genesis 1 and 2. And then drilling down a little bit more, populating all things, but starting with Genesis 3, there's a fall in human beings. We keep messing up and keep messing up and keep messing up. There's a flood out of all of this morass. Out of all of this mess, God says, I've got a guy. I have a person who's going to deliver. And so we have Abram, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. God brings a deliverer all the way to and through Jesus of Nazareth, which is the center of this story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, skip some generations, Moses, skip some generations, David, skip some generations, we've arrived. Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son. And there are different ways to summarize the Bible. Here's one of them. You could summarize all of the scriptures, all of God's true story, God's presence with his people in his place. That's what God is driving to. That's God's mission to us. Every phase. Garden of Eden, just God and Adam and Eve. God's presence with his people in his place, Eden. And then with Moses, God's presence with his people by way of the tabernacle in his place. They're wandering, getting to Cana. David, God's presence with his people through the temple, God's anointed king, David, in his place. And now, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, God's presence is with us, his people, in the place, the location now is God's spirit and the kingdom of God on earth, all the way to the new heavens and new earth. What are you going to find there for all time? God's presence with his people in his place. All things are renewed. And friends, from beginning to end, according to all of God's covenant promises, to use that terminology, it's one story. It's one story. Which is good news for us, because aren't we so incredibly fractured and fragmented as people? Culturally speaking, it's been observed by tons of people over the past few years In a couple different ways. One, the death of monoculture. So you'll hear entertainment writers and podcasters saying there used to be crossover artists where, oh, this isn't just a hip hop artist or a country artist or a pop artist or a rock artist. All of these different demographic groups were were listening to the same people or the same shows or the same movies. Increasingly, and up to this day, and I'm sure it's going to increase more, if you look at different demographic groups of, of different stripes, the top shows, the top movies, the top music, They are all completely different from one another. And also, people have talked about the death of metanarratives, where there used to be some agreed-upon overarching stories for life, the universe, and everything. No more. I think it was President Obama that said a few years ago that in America today, it's it's not only that people disagree about where things are going and the storylines and the interpretations. We don't even agree on the facts anymore. In any court of law, What's the first thing that you do? You agree about the facts of the case as best you can, right? Our president, former president said nobody agrees even about what the facts are anymore. We are incredibly fractured and increasingly community is built, we've talked about this too, based on alignment. Where your people are those that agree with you. And in my humble opinion, that's a recipe for disaster in terms of building cohesive community, because are you ever going to get enough alignment to truly be safe if alignment is a chief value? We need something else. And then even as individuals, we are fractured and fragmented within ourselves. What's life about? Who are we? The poet Pablo Neruda wrote about himself in this way, and I should say, writing about himself, he said, I'm actually many selves. Of the many men whom I am, whom we are, I cannot settle on a single one. They are lost to me under the cover of clothing. When everything seems to be set to show me off as a man of intelligence, the fool I keep concealed on my person takes over my talk and occupies my mouth. Aren't we each individually many people of many masks underneath? That's fragmentation. I I was reading a review article recently about an uh, Italian writer named Elena Ferrante. And this review article said Ferrante's writings are great. I agree, Ferrante is a wonderful author. And the review article was talking about how we need fiction and we need authors to reorder us again. She put it this way. Merv Emre, this is on her reflection quotes. Sometimes you need someone else to help gather the scattered fragments of your existence. A writer is a friend who you can find the thread of your story when you are too blinded by your own lies to grasp it. She can give you the beginning and the end you need. If not in life, then in fiction. Saying here, a good author, when you read a good book or engage a good story, that author takes the broken fragments of who you are and puts you back into one better story. It's interesting to me how this writer here says, if not in life, nobody can do that, but maybe in fiction? The good news of the gospel is that it also happens in life, Because truly, God is our author of this one story who unifies us again, who puts us back together. Where it's not ultimately up to us to take all of these broken fragments and say, I've got to do everything I can to put my humpty-dumpty self back together. Instead, God does that. As we are unified by his one story. And look, during my bad days, when I'm not sure where all of this is going... It helps me to press back in and say this is the story. God's presence with his people in his place through Jesus by grace, which we'll get to in a moment, that makes all the difference in the world. This is the story that I need to find sanity again. And whether you're here in this room this morning as committed Christian, somebody wavering faith-wise, as somebody who's still figuring out a religious skeptic, even what story are you living into? Is it true? And does it unify you? One story, also a broad story. Thinking again, if Genesis chapter 11 genealogy here is telescoping, narrowing all the way down to one person, remember what I said earlier about the previous genealogy in Genesis chapter 10. It's broad, it fills all things, it's robust. And we also said if that was a table of nations, talking about a list of nations that populate the world, we did a cross comparison. As we look in the ancient Near East and beyond, where do we find other documents from other peoples, other nations that have similar tables of nations? How do they differ? And the answer came back, survey says, "Eh, there aren't any. The only table of nations in the ancient world is Israel's. For all of the other nations, for all of the other people groups, you have a genealogy just of you. But that's the only nation that counts. That's the only nation that matters. And if you have deities, you have gods who are of your one nation. But the Bible says God is God of all nations, all peoples. There's one Lord and one human race all together, all united. It's the story of everything. And when we launched this past year, our represence initiative that we're talking about, and one of my big projects for this summer is to get back to our represence initiative, see where we are, how do we keep making headway in the different pathways and practices of presence? It's going to be a lot of fun as we go into year two of our represence initiative. The whole thing behind that is we want to be people of a third way walk and worldview, resilient followers of Jesus with deep anchor in God captive neither to the ideologies of the secular right nor the secular left, because when you become a follower of Jesus, you are built from the ground up into your own thing. They said, if we want to go into a sermon series where we're taking our time, Lectio Continua, the Latin nerds call it, where we're going reading continually through one book of the Bible, but also wanting to address some contemporary stuff. When I was planning out what to preach from, I thought, where where do we go? What book of the Bible can do all of this? And I thought, maybe Genesis? It's supposed to be the beginning of all things? And I thought, well, let's give it a try. But I didn't know for sure. But then at the end of at least this phase of the sermon series from Genesis, I've been amazed because looking back, I'm able to say, it's all there. It's all there. And no, when you look at the beginning chapters of Genesis, is every contemporary topic explicitly touched on? No, of course not. It's a thousands-year-old book. But at least for my own money, as somebody that's done the primary preaching through all of this, every contemporary question that I've thrown at Genesis, Genesis answers back. And that's helped me to say I can actually trust the Scriptures and be challenged by them. And I find answers from here not having to gin up stuff that the Bible's not saying, but it's all organically connected. Hey, maybe this actually is the true story of the world. Maybe the author of this book, ultimately speaking, namely God, is the author of all things. And this universe, not just any, but not just any creatures, but these creatures, us. And so look, while I feel confused... And my mind is scattered in so many different directions. What is the story? What is true? What is up? What is down? I can come back to the scriptures. Does that mean that I always interpret the scriptures correctly? No. Although I take very highly my calling that I need to give, do my best to give the best interpretations I can so that we can have confidence standing on the scriptures for sure, doesn't make me infallible, but gives confidence Because I'm able to say, hey, I know what my authority is at the end of the day. And that's a crucial question, I think, for every human being now. And I understand, excuse me, pardon me. Number one, do you have any great prepon? Number two, what's your authority? That's kind of a take me to your leader sort of question. I, I realize that, but it's still a good one to ask. Surface that question. What do you go to for your authority in your life? Again, skeptic, seeker, committed Christian, everything in between. Twitter? Is it your family? If you're living here in the modern West, probably not. No offense to families out there, but it's in in the drinking water where we have to make our own way. Yvonne was talking about that earlier as liturgist. Is it Fox News? Is it CNN? Is it the coastal elites? Is it Bloggers in Idaho. Or whatever it is. Is it a group of people that you trust a lot and you say, well, I'll I'll just go with them. But didn't mom tell you? Don't be a sheep. Right? And oh, these people that I want to agree with, I also want to be deeply accepted by as well. Okay. There could be a conflict of interest there even when we try to think about what's true or what's not. Or is it a celebrity or an influencer? What's our authority? And the more that we surface these questions for ourselves, at least in my mind, the less crazy it is for me to say, yeah, my authority is a 2000 year old book. And I have conversations with skeptical friends and neighbors say, really, it's a 2000 year old book. And I'll come back and say things like, well, not every old idea is a bad idea. And not every new idea is a good idea. If you check social media, there's a lot of new ideas out there. I don't endorse all of them. And from a different perspective, yeah, this, this is an old book interpreted by imperfect people. But by that same measure, this thing has some staying power. And it's resilient. And it's uniquely, we talked about this last week in the context of the Tower of Babel. It's uniquely to me, as we look at any ancient or modern document, culturally flexible, culturally flexible where it's treated as an authority by cultures that are very, very different from one another that in beautiful and mysterious ways both gives corrections, but then also affirmations in every culture around the world so that this Bible actually facilitates indigenous cultural expressions and doesn't detract from it. And oh, by the way, this foundation has been, if we want, if we want to say, hey, what group am I looking to like two billion plus over the millennia have said, we're, we're going to go here. What is your authority? And again, as I've gone through the scriptures this year in Genesis, I'm realizing it's okay to be weird. It's okay not to fit in. Everybody's weird. One way or another, nobody fits in. And as I see people running to the polls, especially for Christians... If what you believe about life, the universe and everything actually at the end of the day checks every box of the ideological secular right or secular left, how do you know that it's not just a Christian paint job over something else? How can we be sure if that's where I find myself, that I'm outside of the line of critique from what Paul says at the beginning in Romans 12 when he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed in the renewal of your minds. It's okay to be weird. So is Jesus. Finally, this is a hopeful story. Hope in decline. That's been going on for a long time. So I'm late generation X, but if you compare me to other... No, I said that backwards. Compare me to other generation Y, I look really old and crusty. Compare me to other generation X people, I am like bright, fluffy, and young. So I'll I'll, I'll say that I'm a really young Generation Xer. Even in my generations growing up, there were studies that were beginning to be told saying, hey, this is the first generation with a lot of people in America where they think that they have less opportunity and will make, make less money than their parents. All of those things have accelerated to today, where our younger generations are the most anxious, the most depressed, the most hopeless on record which is a tragedy, because as human beings we need hope. I continued to work through 19th century Italian author Giacomo Leopardi, his journals. He wrote this about hope. The greatest happiness possible to man in this world is when he lives with a calm and certain hope. You gotta have hope. I myself enjoyed this divine state for several months when I was 16 and 17. And I will never experience again, because such a hope as this, which alone can make people happy with the present, can only occur in a youth of that age. So, what this guy is saying, hope is great, we die without it, and if you're 17 plus, you're never going to have hope. (laughs) We need hope. And that's what this story gives us. The primeval history that goes from Genesis 1 to 11 ends on a note of hope. This is not the end. Other genealogical formulas before this, they mention when people die. And the implication here in Genesis 11, yeah, these folks died when the generations came up. But death explicitly is omitted, perhaps to say we're focusing on God being committed to preserving life and hope here. Babel is not the end. And God is patient with the sin of humanity that occurs over and over and over again. There's even a cliffhanger. If readers, whether ancient or modern, know where it's going, there's going to be Abram, there's going to be Isaac, there's going to be Jacob. God's line of deliverance is going to be preserved. But the dun-dun-dun moment here is in verse 30. Abram's wife, now Sarai, was barren. She had no child. How is this line going to be preserved? And even later on, that's a question that that Abram himself says. God says, hey, I'm going to deliver all the nations of the earth through you. Abram says, I think it's Genesis 15. I don't have an heir. It's just Eliezer of Damascus. It's like Uncle Fredo. Is that the best that we're going to do with this whole sort of deliverance thing? The cliffhanger, Sarai's barren. Will God come through with his promises? And he does. There's Isaac. I will provide a deliverer. Supremely in Jesus. The New Testament says that Jesus of Nazareth is Abram's offspring, David's greater son, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. If you feel shaken up and don't know which end is up, that's okay. It's okay to get to the end of ourselves, whether you're a committed Christian or not, because very often that, in fact, is where God meets you. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, that at the end of the day, gives us hope. Because the gospel tells us, God sees all of your mess, sees all of your sin, but is not overcome by it. Just as God is not overcome by the accumulating sin throughout these chapters of Genesis, but still preserves hope and salvation. Same thing here, supremely in Jesus. There is hope despite your sin. And because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, what we have is a naming but not a shaming. God names our sin but doesn't shame us for it. And I think we fall on either side. Or culturally speaking, we'll say we we can't name wrong, we can't name evil, we can't name injustice, we can't name sin because that's going to make people think that's really bad. So let's not do that. But then on the other hand, okay, let's not name evil, sin, injustice, so people don't feel shame. But then we're stuck because we can never identify wrongs. The gospel is true. And it goes in both directions at once. God's justice and judgment is fulfilled on the cross in the naming of sin and evil and injustice in the world. But in the same breath, the same breath, come to him by faith. You are completely forgiven. And Jesus has dealt with your shame on the cross. That gives me hope. And hope finally here as well. For a world that's fractured, that's messed up, that's divided, that's always at war with one another, either literal war or just super, super angry. We need a faith whose teacher and founder of our salvation says, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. We need a savior that says, turn the other cheek. That's what gives me hope for a divided world. When all of the alignment fractures are happening all around us, we're able to say instead, we hold truth and we hold grace. So we'll respect and dialogue There is an end of the flame game here. Not in our family, says Jesus. Which gives us hope for mission as it is our hope for us. We've got to press ahead and live, speak, and serve as the presence of this Jesus to these people in our surrounding communities in this place. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the Post Sunday Blues, a preaching post mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at later.